0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Andy. I'm the pastor here at this church. And if you're new here, uh, you've come on a week where we're actually finishing a series uh, in, in a book of the Bible. We've been looking at the book of Philippians, a letter written to the church in Philippi. And this is the last of 13 um, installments as we go through this. And I'm sure it has a lot to teach us as we wrap up as we wrap up this book together this morning. But let's come to the Lord and ask for his help before we start. Father, again, we, we come to you remembering that you are the living God, a speaking God. You have given us your revelation, your word to us here in the pages that we have in front of us. It's a living word. It's an active word. And we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you will apply that word to our hearts. Work change in us change in the way that we think, change in our attitudes. Father, we ask that you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked and correct us, train us, equip us that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ as we live for him. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I was recently uh, made aware by my wife uh, of a uh, BuzzFeed thread that, that's an online kind of survey thing on the internet, as far as I can work out, uh, where people were asked to give away some of the best-kept secrets in the industry that they work in. Okay, And it makes interesting reading as you go through this, this little list. For example, a construction worker writes, if your windows or sliding doors are tough to open and close... Nine times out of ten, we put your own dish soap on the tracks, and the thing works perfectly. It takes five minutes, and we charge $150. Dish soap, people. It's better than WD-40 sometimes. A publicist informs us. It costs about $200,000 to put your own book on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. All you have to do is buy lots of copies yourself, And if that bestseller status helps you to sell more books, you can make back that $200,000 by selling the big stock of books that you've collected. (laughs) Brilliant, isn't it? And a dentist writes, here's the lowdown on toothpaste. You listening? You always wanted to know this, didn't you? As long as it has fluoride, they're all basically the same. When I was in dental school, the Colgate lady came by, and said that everything that says Colgate Total on it is exactly the same. The only difference is the packaging. So whether it says whitening or gum protection or whatever else, it's all exactly the same. The only exception is sensitive toothpaste, uh, which does typically have an extra ingredient. Don't ever feel obliged to buy expensive toothpaste because you think it will be better for your teeth. Just buy whatever you like best. There you go. You got that for free this morning if you got nothing else. It's always worth getting the inside scoop on something, isn't it, from those that really know what they're talking about. It's really informative, isn't it? It's really helpful. And as we come today to the close of this letter to the church in Philippi, we're going to get the inside scoop on two crucial aspects of Christian living. You want the inside scoop? Some insider knowledge. This final section con- concerns a topic that all of us actually need to get a handle on. I don't care what anyone says. And it's money. You notice that? It's all about money, this little section. How should we, as Christian disciples, think about money? Well, what Paul says here in this last chapter is by no means exhaustive. I mean, there's an absolute ton of stuff in the Bible on this topic But here in these verses, we have a couple of absolute gems. If you get a hold of them, they'll be really revolutionary for you, I'm I'm sure. So listen up. Secret number one. Secret number one. There's only two, and this is the first. Contentment. When you have Christ, you have everything. Can you get that secret? Look with me at verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want i can do all things everything through him who gives me strength so verse 10 look at these verses they remind us about the actual reason that paul took the opportunity to write this letter this is actually why he wrote the letter it's basically a really long thank you note to this church But the constantly recurring theme is that of rejoicing. Rejoice, 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 all the way through it. Rejoice despite adverse circumstances. Rejoice all the time, says Paul. And remember, Paul, we've said this many, many times, Paul's in prison writing this letter. He is awaiting trial, life or death decision. And people, he knows, people are making trouble for him. People are stirring stuff up, trying to get him you know, in trouble with the authorities. And the Philippians themselves, as you read through chapter one, you discover they're suffering. They're experiencing persecution and the pressure that comes from trying to live godly lives in an ungodly and anti-God world. And yet, in the midst of all of that going on, this wonderful sort of transaction has taken place. The Christians at Philippi have been thinking about Paul. The man, Paul, the man who travelled thousands of miles over land and sea, directed by God the Holy Spirit, to preach to them the gospel. To tell them, and this was for the first, at least recorded, the first time in Europe about the salvation that is available uh, through Jesus Christ. For the first time, this community heard... The message of hope. That they could have all of their sins, all that murky past, forgiven by God himself. That they could live lives now full of peace and hope. Through Jesus, God had welcomed them into his household. Not as servants to serve him like you do with the pagan gods, but as sons and daughters And as such, they could look forward then to an inheritance kept for them in heaven. It's revolutionary, this message. The Christian gospel is absolutely life-changing. And if you've never gotten to grips with it, then I urge you to do so. So what a special place then the Philippians must have had in their heart for the Apostle Paul and for, for Silas and for the others that were with them when they first came to bring that message to Philippi that turned them around completely, gave them hope. And now they had opportunity to show their love once again, Paul says here. by, by sending, What they've done is they've sent one of their congregation, they've sent this chap Epaphroditus, and they've sent him along with a, a financial gift to provide for Paul's needs as he's sitting there in chains in Rome. They're looking after him. And it's clear from verses 10 and 11, if you look, that actually the big deal for Paul... It's not so much the gift itself, is it? It's not the money. It's the love. It's the affection. It's the concern that it represents. But in response to this support, he wants them, Paul wants them to know, and he lifts it into this subject, doesn't he, that he has learned a secret. He's learned a secret. Actually, the whole phrase there in verse 12 i have learned a secret it is actually the is that is the unpacking and explanation of one word basically the word means to be initiated into something i have been initiated says paul i'm basically what he's saying is i'm an insider in something and i can spill the secrets of this trade paul has learned something absolutely profound that only an insider really knows he has learned to be content. Contentment. Look at him, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And, And actually twice here in this paragraph, we have him stating that he's, been learned to be, that he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances are occurring, whatever might be happening, that's when he's learned to be content, not just in some situations. Now back in, in 2004, with a sense of uh, young adventure, uh, Sarah and I gave up our jobs and went to live in Tanzania as missionaries with the Africa Inland Mission. And that meant that virtually overnight, we went from being what's called dinkies, you know the expression dinkies, dual income, no kids yet, yeah, so Sarah working in medicine, myself as a, as a teacher, we went from that, those two incomes on our own, to having just about enough support coming in to pay our board and lodging. And, and yet, still in that culture, we were considered to be very, very, very rich, <laughs> It was a really hard transition to make. We had become used to just eating out continually, never really worrying about money, just buying whatever we wanted. And now we had to count the pennies. It was hard. I have to say, it did us the world of good. It was like going cold turkey, pulling the plug. But I'm not sure how much progress we made in really... Learning the secret of contentment. We should, it was a it was a good opportunity to. I'm not sure how much progress we made. See, these words in Philippians chapter 4 are not the words of someone who spends their day sitting on the veranda, uh, you know, sipping an iced latte with a good book. I mean, that clearly is my idea of contentment. But these words are the words of a man who. For whom, actually, the, the past, when you, when you look into his story, however many years it's been since he, since, since he started his ministry, have been full of crisis. Crisis after crisis after crisis. Serious ups and downs. In Paul's own words, listen to this. He says this to, to the church in Corinth. I've been in prison frequently. I've been flogged severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews... The 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. It's no picnic, is it, being Paul? But here's the thing, the circumstances, every one of those circumstances, they simply, Paul's learned, to not allow those to affect his sense of contentment. You know, can I just say, I don't think the world really understands contentment. generally speaking, the world that we live in, uh, I mean, it's constantly a desire for more and for better and for the next thing, isn't it? That's the general thing. And then you might think, well, I know people who are not quite like that. You know, they're pretty content, actually. You know, they still have like a a computer that goes back to the 80s or something and an old phone, the first phone they ever got. And they're they're not in all of this rat race and this stuff. But even with people like that, put the prices up. Financial crisis, contentment gone. Contentment gone. Contentment sits on a knife edge for the most contented person in the world, doesn't it? What's the secret, Paul? How do you remain content? Whatever happens. You ready for the secret? Verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You want to be content? You need to embrace that truth, right there in verse 13. You know, this week in Home Group, we were discussing the way that some people describe our Christian faith as being a psychological crutch. You ever heard that expression? Oh, you Christians, it's just a crutch. Yeah? You ever heard that? It's like the person saying that to you is claiming that they are, they themselves are so strong and so self-sufficient, they never need to lean on anything like this. But we Christians, you know, we're just a bit pathetic. And I want to say in response to that, yes, (laughs) I am pathetic. My faith is most certainly a crutch. I will boast in that crutch. I am weak. I know it. In my own strength, I couldn't cope with even a fraction of what Paul has just uh, told us he endured. But by faith, I too can say... I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul knew how to lean his weight utterly and completely on Christ. That's the point here, isn't it? He had learned that when he did that, Christ always supported the weight that he leaned on him. And so Paul can write verse 7. Do you remember? We looked at it last week. Verse 7, look at it. He can write verse 7, telling the Philippians to take everything to God in prayer in full confidence that, and I quote, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's quite a statement. Do you see, Paul can write those words because he himself has experienced that peace. And what's more, he doesn't understand it. He still doesn't get it. How can I be at peace? He's kind of saying. It passes understanding. It was only through the strength that God provides that as the Philippians had themselves witnessed, Paul could endure a severe flogging, Acts 16, and be chained in a prison cell with Silas. And what do they do? With their wounds still seeping. They start singing hymns. They witness to the jailer. His whole household is saved. Paul wants us to know this secret and to learn it soundly. And it takes the whole of Christian life to do this sometimes, doesn't it? Because it's so fundamental, actually, to the Christian life. And these verses, they also remind us that Paul, actually, he's just an ordinary person like you and me. You know, oh, you, you think, yeah, Paul could do those things, but there's no way I could do them. I mean, he's, he's unique, isn't he? But Paul would want to say, don't put me on a pedestal. Follow my example, he says. By all means, follow my example, but never mistake where the strength to do so comes from, where my strength came from. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Don't turn to yourself. Don't dig deep. No, turn to God. Turn to Him. Let me just end this first secret by telling you two myths that this secret blows apart. You listening? Myth one contentment's found in possessions. It's, you know, it's likely that we all know that that's true. That's not, that's not new to most of us, I would have thought. We see that truth played out in uh, uh, the world around us all the time, don't we? You know, in our family, we were just the other day discussing the whole Johnny Depp and Amber Heard debacle around the dinner table and which dinner table has that not been discussed around. And someone around the table pointed out just how fabulously wealthy that couple, that couple are. I mean, the money that's being thrown around in that court case is insane. Did you know, I learned, one thing I learned in this case is Johnny Depp owns an island. Did you know that? Depp I don't know what it's called, Depp Island or something. And yet, they're completely miserable. They've just laid out before the world the misery of their lives amidst all of that wealth, all those possessions. See, we know in our heads, don't we, that possessions do not bring happiness. And yet our hearts have a really hard time believing it. We still long for stuff, don't we? And we long for stuff on the basis that the next thing, if we just had the money to get it, will make us happy. It's a lie. And can I just say, the prosperity gospel, which is an absolute plague on the church, you know, the idea that God will... You know, God's will for one of us, for every single one of us, is to be perfectly healthy, to have lots of, of wealth, to be free from all suffering. That is promised nowhere in Scripture. That's a promise only for the next creation. That's only for the next world, that promise. But here's the warning. People will fall for that false gospel. They do in their droves, don't they? And it is false. But why do they fall for it? Because they've believed the myth that joy is found in possessions. But Paul insists the only thing that really satisfies is having Jesus Christ as your prize possession. Joy is actually found when you give up everything for him. Remember the treasure in the field? With great joy, he sold everything. So that he might have the field, the treasure. That's the first myth. Contentment found in possessions. No, it's not. The second myth is that strength is found within us. I've told you before, most of you, about the horror of that song that is so popular in primary schools. You know, the song, I think it's called Believe. Uh, and it captures the idiotic mantras of our age. These are the lyrics. I can do anything at all. I can climb the highest mountain. I can feel the ocean calling wild and free. I can be anything I want with this hope to drive me onwards if I can just believe in me. Don't get me. It hurts to even read those those lyrics. It hurts even more to watch a school full of 10-year-olds singing it with passion and tears in their eyes. It's the indoctrination of a whole generation, isn't it? If I simply believe in me, I will achieve, well, I'll actually achieve nothing of lasting value. Strength to endure is not found in digging deep. It's found in utter dependence on Christ. As Paul himself testified, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect In weakness, therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So that's the first secret. Do you see? Inside a secret, contentment. When you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything for every situation, for every circumstance. The second secret, second secret generosity it is more blessed to give than to receive have a look with me at verse 14 it was good of you to share in my troubles moreover as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what might be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the second secret is the secret here of generosity. Generosity. Paul recounts here how his friends in Philippi have a long track record, don't they? Of sending him supplies for the ministry he's he's doing. The only church in the area that did it. They're unique in this. And God has used them repeatedly to provide his needs. They've bankrolled Paul's ministry. You know, generosity is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because we we worship a generous God. So to be generous is to be like our Father in heaven. But let me show you three ways, right here in these verses, that generosity is a real blessing. First of all, generosity blesses others it blesses others it blesses the one we give to I mean that might sound really really obvious but as we noted earlier Paul was glad of the practical support but mostly Paul appreciated these gifts because it reminded him that those giving the gifts loved him they were one with him do you remember what he said back in in chapter one He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Think about what he's saying there. That's really why he's joyful. That's what he loves about this gift, actually. This gift was a token of the fellowship, of the partnership that they shared with him. And that he needed so badly to be reminded of. A partnership he treasured so much to know these brothers and sisters, they're one with me in the cause of the gospel. And that's what fills him with joy every time he prays for them. He just has to picture their faces and he's smiling, doesn't he? It's amazing how gifts do that. You know, when, Whenever my brother or I uh, used to come home from university for the weekend, and maybe some of you can, can relate to this, you know, we shared, we shared a car, so we would come back together. My mum never liked to see us going back to university empty-handed. I'm sure all parents do this, but she would, she'd just want to slip us a few quid on, on the way out the door. So she'd shove a £20 note in our pockets or something like that. I mean, it wasn't going to pay the rent, was it? That wasn't what it was for. It was just because she just wanted to love us. Just that last parting little symbol of love yeah have a, a tenor, get yourself something nice sort of thing. And generosity does that, do you see? It shows love and support and fellowship. It blesses the one that we give to, not just financially. But the secret goes deeper. Look at this second way. Generosity also blesses the giver. I guess most people know that expression, whether you're a Christian or not. You've probably heard that sentence, haven't you? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, you know, We use it, we throw it around. We all know that it feels good to give. Some people really get a kick out of buying nice gifts... For friends and family, you know, for birthdays, for Christmas, they like you know, they're anticipating seeing the look on their face when they open this lovely thing, or, or to give to a good cause, it gives them a bit of a buzz, given to something really worthwhile. But that is not, I would suggest to you, the blessing that we're talking about here. This was something Jesus himself said, um, and in Acts 20 you see Paul talking to a group of church elders from Ephesus. And he tells them this. He says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Jesus is talking about more here than just getting a good feeling. He's talking about a genuine blessing, a benefit to the giver. And look at verse 17 here in in the text we're looking at this morning. Paul talks about their generosity producing credit in their account. That's what's happening. It's It's more than just a smile on their face, a warm feeling in their heart. It's credit in their account. By giving to the Lord's work, they are storing up treasure in heaven. As Paul recounts the record of their repeated generosity... He sees this investment as as being like a spiritual health indicator. They put his mind at rest when when he sees this generosity. See, here's a church that's more than just all talk. They act in accordance with what they profess. Recognising the personal blessing of generosity, that's a crucial lesson we need to learn about giving. Giving should always be a joyful thing, shouldn't it? You need to hear that. It shouldn't be done out of compulsion. That's not how Christian giving should be done. It should never be given reluctantly or grumpily or anxiously either. If you don't really want to give, then don't give. God doesn't need it. But listen, you will miss out if you don't. That's really what Paul's saying here. And here's one important reason why. Every time we give to God, we should do it as an act of expressing our hope in the life to come. See, I think this is revolutionary. This is an insider secret, okay? Metaphorically, it puts, it puts us with one foot in the next life when we give. When we give generously just because we love God, it's like putting one foot in the life to come. You need to learn to give, saying, I don't need to hold on to the things of this this world, because my hope rests in heaven. And by doing this, giving then blesses the giver by strengthening their faith and constantly reminding them, don't set your heart on earthly things, what joy. I let go of this world and I hold on to the next in my giving. It builds my faith. It encourages my hope. It revolutionizes generosity, doesn't it? One final thing. Generosity pleases God. It pleases him. Now, don't misunderstand me saying that. Our giving doesn't earn God's favor or give us some kind of merit that we clock up. To make God do things. Again, let me just re-emphasize: there is no promise in the Word of God of earthly riches in return for our giving. The seeds of our generosity in this world reap a harvest in the next. Not this one. God might bless you with wonderful wealth and abundance. Yeah, that's that's great, but it's not, it's not. As a direct result, just because you gave something and it grew a seed, and way, here it comes. That's a wrong way of thinking about these things. It's actually the heart of pagan religion to treat God that way, as some kind of cosmic vending machine. You don't give to a vending machine, do you? You're not, you're not generous to the vending machine with the, with the can of Coke in it, you pay the vending machine. That's the difference. You expect the vending machine to deliver goods. That is a pagan way of thinking about God. We have nothing to do with that as Christians. We give to express our love to God. It's radically different. He doesn't need anything from us. But the God of the Bible is a God who welcomes us into relationship with him. And it delights him to see his children trusting him and being generous out of love. As Paul describes it in verse 18, look, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When we give generously to God, it is genuinely pleasing to Him. It smells good to God. That's what it does. We give, remembering everything comes from Him in the first place, we're just stewards, we're not doing Him a favor. Certainly not paying him. And if it all belongs to him, and he loves you as his child, then you can trust him, says Paul, to supply all your needs. He'll supply all your needs. That's why Paul can make that claim in verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Note the words clearly here, yeah? Needs, not once. Needs picture we have in in the word of god is that god is too loving and wise a father to give us everything that we want that would not be loving he provides for us instead everything that's good and we're reminded here that he is gloriously rich gloriously rich there's no lack in christ jesus And if God did not hold back from giving his son for us, we should have all the confidence in the world he'll never hold back anything good from us. Paul spells out that logic, doesn't he, to the Romans when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So learn the insider secrets. We finish this letter, this great thank you letter for the generosity of these Christians. Contentment, when you have Christ, you have everything. Generosity, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Therein is the joy of Christian living. So may the Lord help us to learn these lessons. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says in the last verse, Be with your spirit.